This episode is brought to you by R1RCM, a leading provider of technology-driven solutions that transform the financial performance of hospitals, health systems, and medical groups. R1 delivers proven, scalable operating models that power sustainable improvements to net patient revenue while reducing operating costs. To learn how you can build a future-ready revenue cycle today, visit us at www.r1rcm.com beckers. Hello, and welcome to the Becker's Hospital Review Podcast. My name is Will Riley from R1RCM. I am delighted to be joined today by Jim Wilson. Jim is the CFO at Mayo Clinic Health System. Welcome to the podcast, Jim. Great. Thanks. Nice to be here. It's great to have you. Before we get going, um, can you just give us a little bit about your background and who you are and where you come from? Sure, sure. As you mentioned, I'm uh, Chief Financial Officer of the Mayo Clinic Health System. Um, I manage a cluster of hospitals in the upper Midwest, uh, which includes a wide variety of uh, going from an academic all the way through to critical access hospitals. So a, a wide variety of portfolio of hospitals and clinical operations uh, throughout the upper Midwest. Brilliant. Um, great stuff, Jim. Well, looking forward to learning more about that and how some of the trends we're talking about or that we will talk about today will are impacting uh, your health system. So awesome. let's jump in. We'll start with a nice, easy one, provider-payer relations. You said that's <laughs> Just, easy, right? <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, it's, I think it's an area that's probably always been difficult, but seems to be getting harder um, at the moment. Is that inflation, the economy? What What is going on? There that are make it's making that relationship even more seemingly contentious. I think it's a little bit of all of it, and I think uh, one of the the core things that per, perhaps either we've forgotten about or that we wanted to selectively forget about is the fact that we had COVID, um, and part of COVID we we got a lot of relief from payers. A lot of payers had uh, provided a little bit. Um, relaxation of what they did for denials and and so forth. We got a little bit of bump in rates from time to time as we saw these complex cases come through our system. And, you know, as I always like to say, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And I think that as things have slowed down, uh, both uh, politically and from the, uh, the, the disease process perspective, I think that things are now on the ramp up again because folks need to recoup what they uh, essentially provided to the, the community in the, the way of relief. And that's putting, presumably, then a lot of pressure on you and health systems like yours. Absolutely. How, how are you responding to that in the way that you approach payer contracting and payer conversations now? Well, I think, um, you know, the best way to win any argument sometimes is uh, is with fact. Um, so I think data-driven analysis, having a good representative idea of, A, what is the argument and the, the issue that you're trying to solve for, Right. Um, and having data that backs up what your position is helps uh, the clarity of of what is the right thing to do in this particular situation. Mm -hmm. um, so, so oftentimes when I look at at items like like this, is a, you know, in a particular example since you brought up denials, is what kind of denials are we getting and why? Is this uh, prohibiting treatment? Is this a sort of a roadblock to the ultimate way that we're still going to get paid, which then adds cost to collect on the the, the provider's uh, behalf? And if that's the case, well, let's kind of skip to the front of the line and we're doing the right thing. Let's get the right payment for what we're doing and take all of the excess noise out of the equation as long as we're doing the right thing. And we should have the data on that. 
Right. I yeah, I wanted I wanted to bring up denials because we're seeing this really significant increase in the number of denials. And I'm interested to know whether you're seeing the same thing. Um, we're also seeing a, just a slowdown in payment rates period from commercial payers taking longer to get paid. Are those trends playing out with you? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the the part that sometimes is uh, maybe a little unsettling is that you don't know the denials that you have until the money is already gone. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the more front-end denials that you have, um, you know, that's really where our physician uh, partners are, are experiencing a lot more is on the front side, because, you know, those are the ones where the opportunity is, is how do you get your physician partners to really change their practice behavior on the front side? Yeah. Um, because once you you get that denial on the front side, you know, there's really not a whole lot of appeal mechanism that you can do on the back side. So you're focusing a lot more on prior auth or level of care to, and all yeah. of those kinds of things. Yeah, as I kind of call those in and sort of hospital speak, if you will, those are those are my never events on the financial side. You know, we should never or strive to never have a, a, a situation where we have no authorizations, um, strive to have you know, a, a, a position where we are never not getting an ABN where, where one is required. The cost of care, the cost of some of these pharmaceutical agents that are, are now being done in practice settings is simply too great for us not to ignore uh, the requirements that go along uh, adjudicating those and acquiring those types of, of drugs. And again, once we get those denials, um, we've essentially worked for free, um, which is not necessarily a good thing when you you wrap around all of the other cost constraints that we have with just being able to provide staff and be able to pro provide that physician services for that day. A absolutely. I mean, it must. so this must place a really significant burden on your organization, both from an administrative perspective and from, uh, I mean, an administrative staff perspective and from a physician perspective, you're asking everyone to be a part of solving the problem. But I think the the big, the, the bigger complexity almost from where, where, where I see it is that um, Mayo's mantra and our motto and what we come to work every day with is that the needs of the patient come first. And we do everything we can to provide the greatest good to our patients at the time and the type of care that they need every day. And that's what we pay attention to. Um, and oftentimes paying attention to that, the greatest need for our patients, sometimes we get maybe, uh, say, hit in the face on the back end by maybe not paying as close to attention as these, these things are very important on the fiscal side. But on the patient side, those things that maybe we're not quite as attentive to because we need to deliver that uh, life-saving treatment right. or that important medication to our patients. So um, by doing the right thing, sometimes we are penalized for it on, on the backside. So it's that, that reconciliation or adjudication of how do we balance the two? Um, I think by and large, we and, and along with the, the rest of the provider community, we do strive to do the right thing. Um, and I do think also on the insurance community, they want to do the right thing with the right kind of cost containment and, and things like that, too, that are, are absolutely needed. And I think sometimes we find ourselves out of whack a bit uh, with, with some of these pieces in the middle. And uh, we end up uh, oftentimes on already stretched thin margins on the, the hospital side of the world, mm. um, adding a lot more burden on cost to collect mm -hmm. uh, by chasing down some of these denials that maybe ultimately we maybe shouldn't have.
Mm -hmm. Interesting. And and I suppose in this kind of environment, given some of the things you said, it's easy to think that technology can be some kind of panacea, but it probably it's easier said than done, right? You have to have the resources to implement it and do it. And and then it, the technology has to work and work with the people who are using it. So it's right. there's no no silver bullet, I guess. No, there's not. But I think that there's a lot of great advantages for it. And I know with uh, a lot of the, the talk about AI and so forth, I think there's a lot of tasks that can really help us out on the revenue cycle side. You know, even um, I'll, I'll say the, the human intervention components of, I'll say maybe the more mundane tasks. Uh, certainly, there's lots of components that can help us out with error management, with uh, exception management, certainly on the clinical side, even uh, different treatment regimens that could either be tailor-made or specific uh, to an individual uh, patient um, with different drug regimens, where maybe we can use that data and say, you know, this really is a statistically proven or a different you know, way of scientifically proving uh, the, the acceptance or the right efficacy of a particular mm -hmm. drug treatment that may get us to the front of the line relative to an authorization or something that may have gone through several cycles of uh, a, 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 a chief medical officer review at, a, at an insurance company. So yeah. I think there's different ways to get through that, that I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what technology does, how that's adapted, and actually how it's internalized with practical involvement by those that pay us and, you know, on our, on our side too, and how we as a, a family of practitioners actually deliver uh, that, that care, maybe a more efficient way with a, a bit more, um, even more data and, and scientific proving behind it. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Let, let's shift gears and talk about a different area. That's I think probably a, a, another challenge, let's say the regulatory environment, you're uh, obviously a very large health system dealing with probably a, a rather complex patchwork of regulation, both at the local level, I would have thought, and the federal level. Um, what are some of the ways that you're dealing with that right now? And what advice do you have for others who are facing a similar changing in regulatory landscape? I, I think, um, you know, not to, to quote uh, one of the more famous legislators, but, you know, you know, one thing is certain in life, death and taxes. I think that we have to understand that that is the industry that we all signed up for long, long ago and that we love to hate or hate to love. Um, and I think mm -hmm. uh, being close to the ground and, and where we are with our constituents and knowing who they are, both our patients, uh, both our, our physicians, our payers, and what we can do to really leverage change. Um, we've got to be able to somehow leverage change and knowing how we are going to deliver care and being bold with how we deliver care. And that also means advocating for those things that uh, we've historically done and then using those lessons on how we maybe unwind or do some things different on those parochialisms that we've always had. Hmm. Um, because I think, uh, you know, doing things the same way and expecting a different outcome, we all know what that definition is. And, you know, we we need to change how we look at things uh, to be able to do them different. Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's, let's move on and talk about the patient a bit more. Patient, obviously, at, at the heart of everything that you do, as you've mentioned. Um, patient expectations of their healthcare experience have changed a lot, uh, driven partly by technology, their experience in other industries, probably broader societal changes as well. What, what kinds of changes have you seen from patients in terms of their outlook on the 
administrative financial side of the healthcare experience? I, I think we're we're still scratching the surface on that. You know, I think that we've we are seeing a lot more variability now. Um, and and I think the first the first thing to remember is that every patient's journey is unique and personalized. I, I think that's always been part of how healthcare has been uniquely different than other industries. But I think where we are now is that with the adaptation of technology um, and different, um, I'll say, sites of care. People have moved to different ways of either convenience or adaptation of technology, still within the aspect of how does this work for me? Um, like my definition of, of how it works for me is much different than my mother's. Um, my definition is how do I get in quick? How do I find somebody who'll take care of me today? And can I do it from my phone? My mother's is who does she listen to and who talks to her personally the best? Mm -hmm. She will go to whomever talks to her the best that and and follow like a, a, a you know like I hate to say it, like they they did you know 20 30 years ago mm -hmm. mine is is convenience mm -hmm. um and I think that 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 is still the way it was 20 years ago just with different pieces of of tools right you know what can we see on our phones how do we steer our care how do we go um to the 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 right access at the right time that we need it. But I think the, the key word that I'll use there is access mm -hmm. um, because I think access into our systems are so important to you. How they look, whether it be access into an urgent care center that gets you into the emergency room, that gets you into see our specialists or access into a primary care physician that gets you into our specialists or just access in general into some entry point into your system is critical. How do you get in and what is the the road to getting in that has the less barriers to it. Mm -hmm. I think those will be the winners because mm -hmm. we have to have access. And then access, does that mean through your phone? Does that mean through a virtual visit? Does that mean through some other level of either in-person or uh, other leverage technology that, that, that can be out there? And I think those will be the winners on, on how uh, folks see themselves having that you know, personalized experience. That's a, um, a nice segue into my last question, which is around the, your safety net strategy. Um, obviously, very predicated on on access there. And, and how are you opening up access to the most vulnerable populations that you serve? Yeah. And I think one of the, the things that we, we have to remember for, for all of our, our patients, you know, is that hospitals... Uh, are are there for our, our communities. You know, we're typically pillars in our, our communities, particularly community-based hospitals. You know, our emergency rooms are the point of access to many of those most vulnerable patients in our mm -hmm. communities. And the question becomes is, how do we take care of health and health care problems before they make it into the hospital? So what we've deployed within our system is uh, you know, looking really at how do we you know, use and leverage tools like annual wellness visits better, reaching out proactively to our community before they get sick, uh, the use of preventative health uh, specialists that, that work with you know, annual mammograms, annual colonoscopies, things like that where uh, we know that problems could exist before um, folks choose or maybe you know life gets in the way or, or other problems get in the, the, the way with access mm -hmm. um, to where they they don't get an opportunity to see a physician. So we are trying on a proactive way uh, to leverage some of those programs that are out there. Perfect. Jim, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. Thank really you. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you. Thanks.